Welcome back to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. This is the Friday edition, and it is your host, as always, Nick Sararis, and we are well into the thick of the NHL playoffs. A lot of teams starting to get eliminated. We're getting deeper and deeper into these series. Only a few series are still ongoing. We saw another elimination on Thursday night. We saw a team in Montreal survive when they kind of look like they might be down and out after game number four. But today's episode is mostly centered around the most fickle position in all of sports. A position that is so reliably difficult to predict going forward. It's probably the most difficult aspect of building a team when it comes to hockey. And it's going to be the central theme of today's episode because we're going to be mainly talking about the Islanders and Penguins series, which wrapped up on Wednesday night. And I was lucky enough to go to game five, uh, excuse me, game six at the Coliseum on Wednesday night. Absolutely incredible atmosphere. The Coliseum is not the most luxurious arena. It is not the most convenient arena to get to, but Islander fans, for all of their warts, they put on quite a difficult atmosphere to play in, and I'm not going to say the fact the Islanders had such a real home ice advantage was a deciding factor in that series, but I definitely can't say it wasn't a factor to some degree. Because that arena was absolutely electric, even before puck drop. I got there probably close to 5 o'clock, maybe 4.30 to tailgate, hang out a little bit. Saw Ethan, saw El Head Honcho from Gotham. Really good time hanging out. Had some beers. Talked about the series. Talked about why we were both betting the Islanders yesterday. And we both kind of came to a similar conclusion, but... The Islanders just don't get rattled, and I know that's one of the things I always begrudge when we talk about sports analysis, especially hockey analysis in the playoffs, is teams wanting it more, having mental fortitude, those kind of cliche things that I kind of roll my eyes at, but there were a few points in that game on Wednesday night where it would have been really easy for the Islanders to just, "Ah, all right, we don't have it tonight, game seven coming up. I mean, they give up the first goal. They tie the game. They give up another goal. They tie the game again. They give up another goal. They're down three to two, and then they come back and they score three straight goals. They win the game five to three. There were plenty of opportunities there for the Islanders to kind of wilt under the pressure because they were giving up an absolute ton of scoring chances. Natural Statric had game six at seventy-one scoring chances for the Penguins, forty-one scoring chances for the Islanders. Expected goals of 2.35 for Pittsburgh, 1.27 for the Islanders. So dramatically outchanced, but the Islanders held their own. Ilya Sorokin proved to be the difference in this series. And Sorokin and Tristan Yari of the Penguins are going to be the central figures we view today's episode through. But before I get to today's episode, I do have to remind everyone to help support the show. Whatever podcasting platform you use, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, if you listen to your podcasts on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever podcasting platform you prefer, this podcast is on there. If you have a podcasting platform you would like to listen to the show on and it is not available there, please let me know. I can upload the RSS feed and get it up pretty quickly. 
going to have a written blog probably some point during the day on Friday, depending when an editor can get to it. But similar thing about the variance of goaltending and why it's so hard to predict. All of that said, I will see you guys on the other side of the drop, and we're going to talk about goaltending in hockey. Now Beauvillier. He'll start his engine with Nelson and Pollock, and this is Nelson in the slot with a shot. He And with that, we jump on into it. So, like I said, there were a lot of points in that game on Wednesday where it felt like the game might swing in Pittsburgh's favor. They come out, Jeff Carter scores pretty early on a breakaway. They go up one nothing about a minute and a half, two minutes into the game. And I'm sitting there and thinking to myself, okay, maybe this is the game Pittsburgh finally gets rewarded for all the good play they're creating, all the scoring opportunities they're making. And the Islanders found a way to survive. Not the prettiest game plan. It's not how you would draw it up. It's not a sustainable strategy going forward against a severely talented Boston Bruins team. That series begins on Saturday night. I believe that's the 8 o'clock NBC primetime game. They're not going to be able to give up 71 scoring chances and win another series. It's just not a probable outcome based on what we know about hockey. Which brings me to the first principle of this episode we're going to talk about, the perils of goaltending and why it is so hard to get a read on big picture-wise. And I know I say big picture-wise a lot. I'm working on it. Believe me. Believe me. I'm trying my best here. But it is such a situational and environmental condition-driven position where... Someone can play out of their mind behind a bad defense and still have bad numbers. You see guys like John Gibson, who for a number of years in Anaheim played really well but on a bad Ducks team, so his underlying numbers weren't great. He he was saving some goals above expectation, which is a measure that can override those, you know, those conditions that, you know, if you're going to get out chance, if the other team's going to have 54, 55% of the scoring chances at five on five, it's going to be really hard to play a good goaltender. But to some degree, goaltender, goal saved above expectation is a counterbalance for that. It's a measure for that. And it's really important. Again, I know I talked about this the other day on the show when I was talking about the Oilers and I was talking about McDavid Dreisaitl against the Jets and Hellebuck. All of the things that make hockey hockey are even more pronounced in a seven game sample size that's if a series goes seven games if it goes less than seven games it's a small sample like i said in the video i posted on twitter a couple weeks ago that got a lot of engagement about Corsi. the more scoring chances you create the more likely you are to score goals in the long run over a long season you know in this year's case of 56 or in a normal year an 82 game season If you create 56, 57% of the scoring chances at even strength, you're going to win a majority of your hockey games just based on sheer probability because the more chances you have, the more likely one is going to go in the net. 
and more so if you're shooting more even if you're not scoring that means the other team isn't shooting and like i frequently frequently say the best defense in hockey is to be on offense and not let the other team have the puck at all so when we talk about it we come to a point where the problems of your team are magnified in these small samples because you only get however many games your series lasts. At minimum, you might get swept like the Blues did, and all of your problems are magnified, and you don't have time to fix or get back to your average and get to your your mean production in terms of whether it's your shooting percentage, your save percentage. Those are the two most fluid things when we talk about hockey, and it's why we have what's loosely called a puck luck stat. It's called PDO. You add a team shooting percentage to a team's save percentage. The average shooting percentage is about 9%. The average save percentage is about 910 or 910-91%. When you add the two of those together, you get 100. That means a team that is perfectly average in terms of their luck would have 100. If that number is lower than 100, it would mean the team is unlucky. If a team's PDO is over 100, that would make them a lucky team. Now, there are holes in this strategy of thinking it is not a perfect stat. Some teams really are just that much better than average. Some teams have above average shooting talent, meaning guys who finish above what you would expect them to. A team like the Lightning that has multiple guys who can score 25, 30 goals have a higher shooting percentage. The Capitals, as long as Ovechkin has been there, have always been a little bit on the higher end of things there because their shooting percentage is a little bit higher than league average. Or the inverse, if you're a team that plays really good, if you have a really good goalie, if he's at 915, 920, even if they're not playing amazing. So the way to look at it is like this. There are teams that have specific styles. They're trying to get the other team to only take certain shots, and that can, in effect, in effect help your goalie save percentage because you're not giving up great scoring chances. It's one of the reasons the Islanders have always graded out highly in PDO, especially under Barry Trotz, is that they don't allow great scoring chances against They've always been a team that's willing to clog up the middle of the ice, especially in the defensive zone, and they're going to force you to take shots from the perimeter, along the boards, point shots, all low percentage scoring chances, all things that are unlikely to resort result in a goal, and that in turn helps your goalie save percentage. Was Semyon Varlamov that great this season? Not really, no, but... Behind that defense, in that system, he faced a lot of scoring chances, but none that were absurd, not a ton that were really dangerous and likely to result in goals, had a higher save percentage, helped the Islanders' PDO out. Now, looking at my notes here, the one thing I want to try and explain that makes this conversation important, goaltending varies very much year to year most goalies only have a two or three year run of being actively good at what they do when i had jay fresh hockey on the show a couple of weeks ago i think there were about two weeks left in the nhl regular season 
He said it is impossible to predict goaltending going forward because there's not enough consistency. You see guys who are considered elite, like Connor Hellebuck, Andre Vasilevsky, two years, three years of that. There is no way to bank on it being the same the following year. Jay Fresh's logic is it's a lot easier for a goaltender to be consistently bad than consistently good. There is little correlation from year to year over the course of someone's NHL career when you talk about their save percentage above expected, goals saved above expected. You don't see the same goaltenders on the top of that leaderboard more than two or three years in a row because goaltending is so situationally dependent. And then, yes, there is a luck aspect to it because sometimes the bounces a puck can take on the way to the net are just... I don't, they're not luck because, you know, someone is sticking a stick out or a body part out to redirect it. But yeah, to some degree, it is a little bit lucky that if a puck gets flung towards the net, someone in, uh, someone in the puck's path on the way to the net can direct it in. That is something that does seem like luck to some degree. And when we talk about goaltending, you think about who's established themselves, set themselves apart at that position in recent history. And I know all of the NHL establishment, all the people in legacy media still swear that Carey Price is the best goaltender of his generation. He's not. He hasn't been the best goalie in the league since maybe 2016, 2017, the year he won the Hart Trophy, the Vesna, and the Ted Lindsay Award, where he won MVP, Vesna, all, and best goalie. I mean, he had a very high peak. That There's no disputing that Carey Price was at one point the best goaltender in the league. He has not played well since he signed that ridiculous contract extension. And we're going to talk about goalie contracts in a little bit because that is one of the themes on today's episode, whether or not you want to gamble on one. But when you think about goaltending, think about how much has to go right for your goalie to play well. They need to be behind, be behind a solid team in front of them. So if you're on a bad team to begin with, you're, you're, you're already facing an uphill battle. Remember what I said about John Gibson and the Ducks a couple of weeks, a couple minutes ago? Less than ideal situation for John Gibson. So even though he's talented, obviously, to some degree, there's only oh so much he can do. When you look at what Connor Hellebuck did against the Oilers in round one, you saw a goaltender steal a series outright. We're talking about a goaltender who saved almost seven goals above expected. So... I've explained it on the show a couple of times, but just as a quick refresher, expected goals is a mathematical model which quantifies a value for scoring chances on the ice. Every single scoring chance, whether it's a shot from the blue line, if it's uh, the redirect, if it's a breakaway, all of those scoring chances have assigned values. It's important to note Blocked shots do not have an expected goals value. So it has to be an unblocked scoring opportunity to get an expected goals value. Shots are graded on a score, a scale of 0 to 1. So all the numbers are decimals. The more likely the shot is to result in a goal, the closer it's going to be 1.0 or a 1 expected goals value of a scoring chance. Every single shot, again, 
it has assigned value. That value comes from historical data based on where goals came from in previous seasons. So the more valuable your scoring chance is, the more likely it is to result in a goal based on historical shot tracking data. So when we look at expected goals, especially in a short series, some of these scoring chances are pretty good. You're, a goalie's robbing someone on a breakaway. That's a high-value save. That shot's more likely to result in a goal. And it makes your goalie more valuable. A goaltender who's good on breakaways is going to typically have more goals saved above expected because those are more dangerous. Now, it's a, there are ways where teams can kind of not intentionally game the system, but there are ways that some players can kind of throw the expected goals models off the scent because you're just firing pucks into the goalie's shin pads from four feet away that have no chance of resulting in a goal because you're in too tight. But for the most part, these are a useful tool to get an understanding of where players are creating chances from on the ice. And in the Penguins and Islanders series goaltending was the difference. Of course, there were other underlying factors. The Islanders did do a good job of limiting Sidney Crosby's impact, did a good job of trying to intentionally match up Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak with them. They did a pretty good job limiting of getting Malkin. Of course, Malkin was playing hurt, so it is worth noting that Malkin was playing, dealing with an injury, most likely a leg injury based on the way people around the team were talking about it, the way NBC talked about it during the series, they limited him. For the Penguins, the Penguins' two best players in the series were Chris Letang, the defenseman, and then Jeff Carter, who was getting pretty decent matchups as the third-line center for the Penguins. And I will circle back around to my initial point. Goaltending was the difference. Think about how different the Islanders played in front of Ilya Sorokin as opposed to Semyon Varlamov. Varlamov was not great the first few games he played. If he just makes one save, two saves in either game two or three, the Islanders might win that series in five, to be quite honest with you. I know it's very hard to win a game in today's NHL only scoring one goal, but the one goal he did let up in the 2-1 to loss in Game 2, that was a flub. He really should have had that one. And, you know, 1-1, one, one, you get to overtime, maybe you win Game 2. But they roll with Varlamov again in Game 3. They lose 5-4, to four, the very back-and-forth seesaw game, the first one at the Coliseum. And then they go to Sorokin. The Islanders for the series had 1.39 goals saved above expected, and that's mostly stemming from what Var of what Sorokin did, not Varlamov. I'm pulling up the number here. So after game one, th this is Evolving Wild's expected goals model. Every website has slightly different statistical models, and the inputs are a little bit different, so the scores might be a little bit different, the values, the expected goals values. So I'm looking at it real quickly here, but... The Islanders were at minus two goals saved, 2.7 goals saved above expected. So the Islanders had given up 2.7 more goals than expected through three games. That's a rolling average. So 
grading out the goals saved above expected game one game two then at the end of game three they're minus 2.7 game four minus 1.8 and then game five 1.5 goal saved above expected that's a big swing that is an absolutely enormous swing in the series and then we come to the main reason I wanted to have this episode today to talk about Tristan Yari, the Penguins, team building, the importance of the goaltender position, and why it's so hard to predict what someone is going to do in that situation. So, game number one, 1. 1.6, goal saved above expected. Game number two, minus 0.5, goal saved above expected. Minus 1.1 game 3, minus 2.2 game 4, minus 3.6 game 5. By the end of game number 6, Tristan Yari had given up 7.2 goals more than expected based on where scoring chances came from. If you think about some of the goals that were in game number 6, the elimination game, you think about the Pulak slap shot from the point. Yes, Ryan Pulak has a pretty hard slap shot, but Yari saw that and he missed it. You think about the Brock Nelson goal where he skates down into the slot. He beats Yari five hole. That's one he's got to have. You think about the Tito Bovillier goal. I almost called him Bellevue, thinking of John Bellevue, the Montreal Canadian legend. But you think about Tito Bovillier's breakaway where he banks it off. uh, Not banks it off. He goes high glove side on a breakaway. And that Bovillier-Nelson line was buzzing on Wednesday absolutely buzzing Beauvillier is one of the most exciting players left in these playoffs and I know that sounds very weird to say about you know maybe the third or fourth best player on the Islanders depending on the given night especially on a team that features Matt Barzell who's one of the most electrifying players in all of hockey but for my money, Beauvillier is so damn good in the playoffs. Him, they had Josh Bailey out there humming. It was very, very impressive to see them do that to Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh's been a good transition team. And this year, the Pittsburgh defense was a strong suit of the team, even though it was so injured. And for the most part, I mean, everyone was healthy for Pittsburgh, uh, on the back end at least. Dumoulin and Latang were out there. The Marino-Peterson pair was all right. And then the C.C. Matheson pair wasn't awful. I mean, it wasn't a, a perfect play, white series for those guys back there. But when your goaltender is giving up seven more goals than expected, it's going to be very difficult to win a playoff series in such a short period of time unless your team is scoring like crazy. And for whatever reason, the Penguins were just unable to figure out a way to score with any real consistency. And when you're having a hard time scoring with consistency and you have a wobbly goaltender, that's where you can start to get into your own head. And that's one of the things I did want to talk a little bit about was the Islanders did a really good job, especially on Wednesday, of clamping them down before they could break out of the zone and forcing the Penguins to slow down, reassess, circle back around, and just wasting time off of the clock. The Islanders scored their fifth goal midway through the second period, and then neither team scored in the third period, so... They definitely were giving up a lot of chances. Like I said, they conceded 71 scoring chances and they only created 41, but they converted. And 
again, it is not likely that you're going to be able to play like that all the way to a Stanley Cup, especially against a team like the Bruins, who is one of the staunchest teams defensively in the entire league. They don't give up a ton. As long as everyone on their back end is healthy, they should play pretty damn well. I'm very excited to see the Charlie McAvoy and Matt Barzell matchup go head-to-head because that's what I assume Bruce Cassidy is going to want to do is try and get that pair, the McAvoy-Grizzlick pair, out there on the ice against Barzell to limit him in transition because Barzell is just a walking one-man zone entry. I was very impressed with the Islanders, I will say, because it would have been very easy for them to get caught up in the moment, take some stupid penalties because the Penguins were trying to bait them into some shit. The referees were giving the Penguins a lot of leeway. More than one time, someone got tackled behind the play. And yes, it's playoff hockey. You want to let the guys play. You don't want to let the officials ruin the game, that kind of thing. I agree with that for the most part. But at some point, you do got to get control of the game from an officiating standpoint where you you got to keep everyone safe because if you're letting guys get away with small shit, they're going to keep pushing and pushing until someone actually gets hurt because someone takes a run at someone because you're not controlling the game properly. But I really, really am interested and I'm very compelled to see what Pittsburgh is going to do in the offseason because that's one of my favorite parts of when a team gets eliminated and then the playoffs is when all of the hockey internet proceeds to perform their amateur freelance autopsies on teams and assess what went wrong for them. I know I saw more than one person already after, you know, one day say, well, you know, the Penguins didn't get any production from their top line. You didn't get anything from Gunsel, Rust, and Crosby, so that's a real concern. Maybe you should consider moving on from one of those guys. Maybe you got to start considering that the Penguins need more size. They need a little bit more, a little bit more rugged style of player to be able to deal with the type of teams you're going to play in that first round because Gensel and Rust had a hard time. The Islanders did a good job of bodying them, of being physical with them. And I will say, I did talk about this being part of the reason I was so frustrated after the Oilers were eliminated. Yes, they were physical with Brian Rust and Jake Gensel, the Islanders were, but that's not the reason those guys didn't score. They didn't score because they weren't getting to great areas and because Sorokin was a brick wall. Uh, let's be realistic here. If a goaltender is hot, you can have the best goal scorer in the world in front of them and a hot goalie stop them. Think about all the times the Rangers beat the Capitals in the playoffs because Lundqvist was just, you're not scoring on me. I don't care, Ovechkin. You're just not doing it. You're not getting more than one pass for you. And... Sorokin, he gave up three. I'd say two of them he didn't really have a chance on. One of them he had an okay chance at. But realistically, if you can get that slightly above average borderline elite goaltending in the playoffs, you can you can do things beyond your offensive production, which is a clear case here. For the series, at, at, in all situations... 
The Penguins outchanced the Islanders 370 to 258. That is 59% to 41% of scoring chances. Expected goals-wise, closer, closer, because the Islanders are a team that opts to shoot from dangerous areas. They don't take as many shots. The Penguins were just firing the puck from all directions. You don't get to 78 scoring chances in a game, 71 scoring chances in a game, if you're not just flinging the puck at the net to see what happens. 13.47 to 11.22 it was the expected goals battle between the two teams. A lot closer than you might think based on what you saw in the style of play, the flow of play. But like I said, expected goals accounts for their, where a shot is coming from. So the fact the Islanders scored so many chances that were off of breakaways, that were redirects, those are more dangerous those have a higher expected goals value. So it makes sense that the expected goals totals were as close as they were. Now, if Tristan Yari just is half as bad, he only gives up three more goals than expected, the Penguins probably win that series, to be quite honest with you. You think about it. The Islanders won game one, four to three. The Penguins win game two, two to one. Penguins win game three, five to four. Then the Islanders win four one, three two, five three. The Islanders are not a high scoring team. Like yes, they have pretty good underlying numbers in the regular season. They had good expected goal numbers. They're one of the five best teams in the entire league. I believe they were number three in terms of high danger scoring chances. So that's in part why they had such good expected goals numbers. But the Islanders are not a high scoring team. They didn't hit four or five goals a lot in games this season. But they managed to hit four, at four or more in uh four of the six games. So that's a sign they were scoring more than they typically did, and they took advantage of it. I, I know rewatching the game, I rewatched the game I rewatched the game um Thursday during the day in preparation to do this episode. I know Pierre, who I, I disdain and is an awful broadcaster, he mentioned it. The Islanders were just firing at Yari's glove side because they felt like they could beat him there. And for the most part they did. They singled out a obvious weakness it was clear the coaching staff had emphasized hey we got to be shooting this guy glove high he's having a hard time reading it if we keep doing it we can rattle his confidence and you saw the game slip away from the penguins so quickly the islanders tied it at three you get the pulak slap shot and then you get the brock nelson goal and that was it the coliseum was rocking and the Penguins had a few good chances in the third period to get it closer, but you didn't feel like the Islanders were going to give an inch, and it, they didn't. And I know it's very easy to say that after the fact because the Islanders won, but from a gut feeling, anecdotally, it never felt like the Penguins were going to tie the game up once it got to 5-3 because they were pressing so hard. They were flinging pucks from anywhere, just trying to get them on net. And for whatever reason, I tweeted it during the third period, during a stoppage in the third period when there was about 10 minutes left. Why didn't Mike Sullivan just staple Evgeny Malkin, Sidney Crosby, Jeff Carter, Chris Letang, and Gensel out there 
every two shifts, every three shifts, you're down two goals in an elimination game. I understand you're playing well from a scoring chance perspective, that you're driving play, that you're controlling the puck for long stretches of time, but you got to put your high-end players together at the end of games there if you're chasing. If you're down two goals and you only got 10 minutes left in your season, you might have to juggle the lines a little bit. And I understand Sullivan is one of the better coaches in the league. He's won two Stanley Cups. He's probably going to have a good argument to win the Jack Adams Award for best coach for the 2021 season because the Penguins survived the regular season so well. They won the Eastern Division, even though they lost the second most games to injury any team in the entire NHL, and did it with pretty meh replacement players, a lot of guys who were AHL guys, fringe NHL pieces that got good production out of them. But the easy answer for the Penguins is Yari was atrocious, the worst goaltender of any in the first round in terms of goals saved above expected, and they didn't score enough. I, granted, they were in high-scoring games. I mean, five to three, five to four, four to three. Those are pretty high-scoring games. And if you're not outscoring your opponent, you're gonna lose. Uh, last time I checked, you win hockey games by scoring more goals than the other team. Even if you gotta go to overtime, the team with more goals is gonna win after the overtime period. So it brings me to the last point I want to make. The last topic for this episode is banking on goaltenders it is not a direct one-to-one comparison but I think a lot of what goes into it is similar and the answer is you treat goaltenders like running backs and yes I am a vocal running backs don't matter person because they are so dependent on the players around them and the scheme to play well And I think that's very, very, very true for goaltenders as well. Do I think there are goaltenders who are elite players and can swing a game like there are a few running backs who are that damn good that even though they are running backs, they can kind of supersede the positional value because they add another dynamic, whether you want to talk about McCaffrey or Saquon's receiving abilities. You can make that argument that those guys are a little bit more special than the average running back and that there are obviously goaltenders who can and are capable of doing special things. But at the same time, like I said earlier when I was talking about what Jay Fresh said on the podcast and what he wrote on his Substack a couple of months ago, that goaltending is just kind of stupid and situational dependent because you could put an average goaltender on an elite team and you'd get fine results because the goaltender doesn't have to work that hard. On the inverse, you see goalies who are in not amazing situations just play out of out of body they play consistently well above expectation for a number of years you think about Sergei Bobrovsky in Columbus you think about Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg you think about John Gibson in Anaheim you think about Henrik Lundqvist on the Rangers you think about Carey Price on Montreal but there are reasons that you don't invest in your goaltender and your goaltender should never be the most expensive player on your roster just they should never be the most expensive player on your roster 
like a running back shouldn't make more than $10 million a season because the the implied value that comes along with that. If you are paying a player that much money, they cannot afford to mess up. And because goaltending is so variant and is so dependent on the situation, good goaltenders can flop in not horrendous situations. Sergei Bobrovsky played on a decent Florida team this year that was not bad. The Panthers were not bad this season, but Bob's numbers just haven't been good. He got there in free agency after the 2018-2019 season, and he has been objectively bad as the most expensive player on that roster. And from the moment that contract was signed, every single person with a statistics or an analytics background was extremely skeptical of that team-building strategy because you're committing... $10 $10 million, which can pay for two middle six forwards. You can get pretty solid NHL players for five, five and a half million dollars a season, and you get two of them. You could get a third line center and a wing for that $10 million you're giving Bobrovsky, and now you're stuck because nobody in the league is taking that Bobrovsky contract because there's so many years left and it's $10 million a season for below replacement level goaltending. The The Panthers are fucked from a finance standpoint because they have so much money tied up in an asset that no one else would want. And are you really going to retain 50% of that salary for five more years that's left on it? That sounds like a horrendous proposition to try and get someone else to take it. And even if you're talking about some other situations with goaltenders with long-term contracts, the Carey Price contract is an abomination. And then they're paying Jake Allen like four and a half, five million dollars a year. The the Canadians have like fifteen and a half, sixteen million dollars invested in goaltenders, and you wonder why the rest of their lineup is just a bunch of guys like. Yes, I like Thomas Tatar. I like Philip Deneau. I like a lot of pieces. I like Nick Suzuki. I like Cole Caulfield, obviously. There are a lot of guys on that team I like, but, you know, Montreal doesn't scare anyone because they, they their entire strategy is to win every game 2-1 to one and turn it into a, a rock fight. And that's just not a sustainable strategy for long-term success. Think about the Rangers, what they did with Henrik Lundqvist for all those years, where he was the most expensive player on the roster getting $8.5 million a year. Yeah, Hank was amazing, and he's definitely the best goaltender of the last 10 years, if you look at the numbers. But it's so hard for a goaltender to elevate his team because at the end of the day, a team still needs to score enough goals to win. And even if Lundqvist is only given up two three goals a game you gotta be able to still score at least four and for the rangers it was really hard to score four goals because they had that extra money tied up in henrik lundquist do i think with a slightly less talented goaltender only making five or six million dollars a year that extra forward they could have bought with that two or three million dollars would have been the difference no but from a team building perspective it's probably a little bit more defensible and yes I do understand why teams are so desperate to lock up a goaltender once they get one or two good seasons out of them. The Blues gave Jordan Bennington five years by $5.5 million, something in that ballpark, for two seasons of NHL production. 
and basically only because he won them the Stanley Cup, if the Blues had gotten eliminated in, say, the second round in 2019 instead of winning the Cup, they probably don't give Bennington a long-term extension. They probably bridge him out and let him go to unrestricted free agency when he reaches 27, 28 years old, whatever. The Canucks, they gave Thatcher Demko a long-term deal based off of a good run in the bubble last year and an okay first half of the 2021 season. You're going to see some interesting ones. Chris Drieger, the Florida goalie who kind of stole the job from Bobrovsky, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent this summer. You're going to see a few teams with restricted free agent goalies, most notably, of course, Igor Shosturkin with the Rangers. The Islanders have found that middle ground where they're not paying too much for their goaltending. Yes, they're going to have to deal with Sorokin sooner rather than later because he signed his entry-level contract older than 22 years old. They only get two years of control over him on that rookie contract, so they need to straighten that out. They're probably going to make Sorokin the full-time starter, and Varlamov is going to become the 1B or the backup goalie. I'd imagine they go something like a 50-game, 30-game split, something in that ballpark, maybe 45-35, somewhere like that, to not wear Sorokin out too much come next season. But it's a direct, direct version of what the Penguins did. The Penguins had Tristan Yari last year. They had Matt Murray. They said... We'll go with the young guy. We will save our money. We don't think the drop-off is going to be that much because our team in front of him is going to be better. And we think just the right situation. All we need is an average goalie. We won two cups with Matt Murray, who looks to be a slightly below replacement level goaltender now that we have the benefit of hindsight and the underlying numbers over a number of years away from teams that won the Stanley Cup. And, yeah, he's an okay goaltender. He's fine. I don't think he's going to help Ottawa particularly. That's another goaltender who got that five-ish year, $5 million per year contract, Matt Murray in Ottawa. So, in principle, I understand what former Penguins general manager Jim Rutherford was doing coming into the season saying, we're going to go with Yari and DeSmith because the team in front of them is going to be good and we're not going to have to really worry about them because their life isn't going to be that difficult. All they got to do is play average and we're going to be a pretty good team, which is what happened in the regular season. The Penguins went as their goaltending went. They won when their goaltender, whether it was Yari or DeSmith, played well. They lost when they did not. Now, you could say that's true about a lot of teams, that depending on how their goaltending plays is going to be the deciding factor if they win or lose a majority of their hockey games. And yes, goaltending varies that much, and it is that important. And that is where we get to the final point on today's show. Don't invest in goaltending long term. Do not hamstring your team based on a small sample size, even if it's in the playoffs, even if you win a Stanley Cup, you got to know when to walk away from the goaltender position. You see it. Washington made a choice. They decided they were going to let Braden Holpe walk. They said, it's fine. We have Samsonov. We have Vanacek. Our team in front of them is going to be good enough. All we need is average to slightly 
above average goaltending, and we'll have a very high ceiling. There's the risk, though. You end up like the Penguins with Tristan Yari, and you go home earlier than you should because you rolled the dice on the young goaltender because he was inexpensive, and it let you spend money in other places. Ultimately, I do think that is the better team-building strategy from a general manager's perspective. I'd rather spend the money on other positions because goaltending changes so much year to year. The leading goaltender in goal saved above expected is never the same guy multiple years in a row. It has happened, I think, twice in 12 years that we have the shot tracking data to do it. So not something worth banking on. And for my Penguin fan friends, for Hunter, who's probably listening, I'm sorry, but you run it back. You bring everyone back. Maybe you add another depth forward who has a little bit of an offensive upside, maybe score a little more. Maybe you got a third-pair defenseman in there to replace Cody Ceci. But team-building-wise, the Penguins are fine. They just needed average goaltending and they didn't get it and now they're at home with the rest of us watching the playoffs and that is just about all the time i have for today's episode i hope you guys enjoyed today's show i hope you guys have been enjoying a very very entertaining stanley cup playoffs thus far i know i've been neglecting basketball i have been watching but i've been so enthralled with the hockey playoffs it's a lot easier to get hockey guests I know. We'll get some basketball in here. We'll get some racing in here. We'll get some football in here. We'll definitely get baseball in here soon. Supposed to go to my first Met game of the season on Friday as long as the weather holds out. I will see you guys next week. Be sure to check on Gotham SN if we get some hockey blog up for the weekend, which we will. Just a matter of what day. I will see you guys next week. Enjoy the weekend. (laughs) 